Good morning, church family. It's great to see you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you find the last chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians? In fact, today I have the privilege of ending an incredible journey. In fact, I've called today's message, Giving Away the Ending, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to finish this journey. 518 days ago, on this stage, on January 23rd of 2022, we began walking verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Corinthians, and it has been a glorious journey. I have enjoyed learning so much with you. But endings matter. You ever had a movie that you got involved with and somebody gave away the ending? I don't have a lot of time for TV in my life. Those days are gone. There'll be some more in the future, but right now, I don't. But occasionally, I enjoy a good movie. And so the other night, I decided at some point I was tired of being around my family, so I went in my bedroom, and I opened up my mother's Netflix account. <laughs> and I was looking for something maybe science fiction -y. Again, I watch maybe four movies a year. In fact, international mission trips are long travels where I catch up on my movies on airplanes. But outside of that, I am not a movie goer or a movie watcher. But I enjoy movies because I am a storyteller. And movies are storytellers. And I love people. I've always been fascinated by people. I have to work hard to meet somebody I can't find a reason to like. I like people. I enjoy relationships. And good movies are really not about the the subject of the movie. They're about the people who tell the story of the subject of the movie. And I decided to watch a movie uh, with Matthew McConaughey in it called Interstellar from 2014. I had not watched this movie when it came out. And I got involved in this movie. But there's just one problem with, with, the pro with these movies now. I, I can't sit for a long time. I have to get up and move around and and I thought, okay, this will be a little 90-minute movie. This movie is two hours and 45 minutes long. It's a science fiction movie where they go out of space into a, a black hole in space outside the uh, planet of Saturn looking for a new world because our world has been destroyed by, um, by pollution. And there's a science fiction movie about that. And it's very complex, and it involves, of course, fiction and physics and philosophy. And actually, there's even some theological undertones to it. I watch a movie with that kind of depth. I like to study the storyline and what they're trying to tell us. But at some point, I had to make the decision, am I going to finish this thing or not? Because as I have gotten older, by about 8.30, I'm hunting a place to lay down. And by 9.30, if I'm not in bed, you don't want to be around me. And by 10, if I'm up, something bad has happened. I like to be in bed. This movie had me at 1.30 like this. <laughs> I mean, I, I was rooting for Matthew to, to, to figure out how to solve the problem. And what would have been incredibly disappointing to me would have been not being able to finish it. I had to know the ending. And every once in a while, you'll hear about a great movie, and before you get a chance to watch it, somebody will give away the ending. And man, that's just a killjoy. Well, the good news is we've watched the entire journey of 1 Corinthians together. And today, I want to give away the ending by talking about giving away the ending. Now, to do that, though, I think it's important to contextualize the ending. 
This has been such a good journey, and I wanted to remind you of it. So with your Bible open to chapter 16, I'll not ask for you to flip around, but just pay attention to where we've been. If you remember in chapter 1, we started with a series called Saints Together. It's really summarized by chapter 1, verse 10, where the Scripture says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul was writing to a church that had definitely dealt with the discouragement of division. And he said, I'm writing that you may be together. No sooner did we finish chapter 1 that we dove into a look at the wisdom of God. What does it look like to operate not with man's wisdom, but with God's wisdom? And of course, a great verse to capture this is in chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul says, Yet among you, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age. We're not interested in the wisdom of the world or this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. So there's a greater wisdom from God that we can have through His Word and through the Holy Spirit, and I need that in my life every day. In fact, when people come to me and say, Pastor, how can I pray for you? The number one thing that comes to my mind is wisdom. I want to make good decisions as a follower of Jesus, and I know that certainly that is your desire as well. After we worked through the wisdom of God, we came to the third series called Follow the Leader, talking not just about following spiritual leaders, but following the leader of the church. Who's the leader of the church? Well, it's not the pastor. It's not a priest. It's not an elder, an overseer, or a bishop. It's the Lord Jesus. He's the leader of his church. And of course, this is captured beautifully by Paul, where he writes these words in chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Each leader in our life, our small group leader, our children's leaders, our pastor, they are a part of the puzzle God is putting together. But ultimately, we're just a part of what the Lord himself is doing. Now, after we finished Follow the Leader, just a few weeks later, we started a very hard series called Do You Not Know? Specifically dealing with sexual sin being tolerated in the church there in Corinth. It was a wake-up call for all of us, and a verse that captures that is really found in chapter 16, chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? How we live our lives spiritually matters to the Lord. How we live our lives physically, emotionally, and socially matters to the Lord. But so too, how we live our lives sexually matters to the Lord. All of these are under His Lordship, and they are according to His plan given to us as gifts within the constraints of His Word. After we finished Do You Not Know, we moved on to the next series, Managing Marriage, over in chapter 7, and dealt with all the different ways people are touched by marriage, not just those who are married, but those who are single. This is why Paul gives that great word in the 17th verse of the 7th chapter. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. 
God's called you into a marriage, stay faithful to it. If God's called you into a season of singleness, stay faithful to that. If God has called you into a season of wondering what your next season is, you stay faithful today and let the Lord deal with tomorrow and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now, after we dealt with the subject of marriage in chapter 7, we got to chapter 8 and chapter 9 on spiritual freedom. What does it look like to be free in Christ, but to give up things I may be free to do in order that my brother or sister may not stumble? And Paul says in the ninth chapter, the 19th verse, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. My freedom in Christ can never lead me to forget that if there's something in my life causing another person to stumble, I ought to evaluate whether or not that's something I should freely give up. And then after we dealt with freely bound, we moved to the next series, American Idols, the subject of idolatry. It's no longer wooden posts or golden calves. An idol is anything, any idea, any person, any place, any dream, any passion that takes the place of God in your life. And what does Paul say to us? The same thing he said to the Corinthian believers. Whenever you're pushing back against those things that would cause your heart to move away from honoring the Lord as first, remember, it can be a battle but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is not a new battle. You're not alone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Can I encourage you and admonish you? Do you know one of the ways of escape to temptation? It's to be sitting right here with me every week. When we start our week in God's house, under God's word, with God's people, we recalibrate our hearts and our minds. I would even say during the summer months as travel gives you and your family much needed opportunities to rest, relax, maybe go see some family. That's a good thing. But make sure the discipline of weekly worship, whether you take advantage of everything that's available online, as some of you are this morning, or you're here with us, or you visit another healthy Bible-believing church, it is a good thing to make that your weekly rhythm. Now, after we dealt with American Idols earlier this year, we went back into church matters where Paul sort of has a, a potpourri chapter of dealing with all the stuff that the church in Corinth was not getting right. How we do church matters to the Lord of the church, which is why Paul wrote these words in chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. We sing to the Lord because believers have always sang to the Lord. We preach God's Word because God's Word tells us to preach God's Word. We give, we take the Lord's Supper, we baptize, we operate according to the great traditions of our faith as outlined in the Scriptures. Now, after Church Matters, I don't know if you remember, but we jumped into a series about the future resurrection we can all enjoy and Paul says, if there's no resurrection in our future, then everything we're doing is in vain. So, of course, the series appropriately was called Not in Vain. In the last verse of that wonderful series in chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There's coming a great getting up morning. 
where you and I will meet the Lord, whether we meet him in our natural death or we meet him in his return. And on that day, there'll be many parts of my life I no doubt will regret, but I will never regret anything I do for the Lord. It is not in vain. Now, after we did that in chapter 15, we dropped back and talk, took on the subject of speaking in tongues, of spiritual gifts, and prophecy. And we learned that we lead with love and we rejoice in the gifts God has given us. This is why the summary verse of that series has to be 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 39 through 40. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all, thing, all things should be done decently and in order. And that, my friends, is the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a great journey, and I've enjoyed it with you. We come to chapter 16, and as I said last week, chapter 16 is really a housekeeping chapter. But if you read chapter 16 in its entirety, you begin to see some truths about the gospel emerge. Three quick truths is that the gospel, the good news of Christ, it is really a, a moving gospel. It's about moving. It's about loving, and it's about giving. If you have your Bible open to chapter 16, look at verse 5 and listen to Paul tell the Corinthian believers his plans. I will visit after passing through, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if we were to continue to read, which we're not, in verses 10 and then verses 12, and then again down through verses 15 and 16, Paul begins to mention some other people. And what you find is that there was a story behind that blue, green, and red line in the map on the back of the Bible you grew up carrying to church. You know, Paul's three missionary journeys. You remember getting bored in church before you had an iPhone and you just had to look at the maps? This was a real journey where there was real movement. At midnight last night, one of our teams arrived back from ministry in Nicaragua. Another team landed in Nicaragua. Other teams are headed to places like Massachusetts. Some have just returned from Uganda. Still others are headed out to Utah. We have teams literally leaving and going almost on a weekly basis from our church, and that doesn't count those that are happening here in our own community. Some of you, not all of you, one day I hope it's all of you, but some of you as you drive to work tomorrow, we're not just going to work, you're going to a place that you've recognized God has placed you to be a witness, to be a missionary, to be someone who testifies to the goodness of God. The gospel is not a come see movement, it's a go tell movement. And the movement of the gospel continues on. We camped in 1 Corinthians because Paul couldn't get there and he had to write. And the reason he wrote is because he was somewhere else ministering to other people. There is a movement 
to the gospel. So much of modern-day religion that poses as Christianity looks stale and static and stoic. But I don't find that in the Scripture. I find a great adventure of moving out in God's will through the seasons of your life and through special opportunities to join the Lord in what he's doing. So even the ending is a testimony to the movement of God. But the ending is also a testimony to the love that Paul had for these people. If you've been with me over the last 518 days, you'll know that Paul did not mince words. There were times where he called them out over some terrible sin in their lives. But it was never done with the point of condemnation. It's always done with the desire of repentance. This is the difference between someone who speaks truth into our life because they love us, and someone who speaks truth into our life from a place of legalistic judgmentalism. Notice the love that bounces off the pages. Just look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. When Paul was mentioning some characters in his life in verse 17, he said, they refreshed my spirit, give recognition to such people. And then look at the very last verse of 1 Corinthians. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. At one point he says in verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And there are some parts of the Bible that we don't apply directly. Today I'm not kissing anybody in the room. There'll be one lady in the second service. I try to kiss as often as she'll let me, but she's the only one. However, if you travel overseas, if you go to other cultures, you'll see grown men holding hands. You'll see that it's very common for people to kiss one another in love and affection. Surely he's talking about the appropriate type of affection that we give one another. Everybody here knows the joy of having a little one crawl up in their lap and filling their little cheeks with kisses and loving them. And everybody knows your grandmother's kiss on your cheek as you leave from having Christmas dinner or Fourth of July party. We understand what Paul is saying. Paul's saying that for the people of God, love should always win the day. So this is a moving gospel. This is a gospel that's about loving. But interestingly, the last subject that Paul chooses to give with is about giving. And he does something so simple, yet so powerful. I began in chapter 1 of Verse 16, look what he says, chapter 16. Now concerning the collection of the saints. Let me just pause there and tell you what that meant. The first church to be persecuted for the faith was not in Rome. It was not in the cities of Galatia, Lyconium, Derbe, Antioch. It wasn't in Philippi or Ephesus, and it certainly was not in Corinth. We know that persecution intensified in the latter parts of the first century into the second century, when you hear of the stories of the martyrs where the Romans fed the Christians to lions, that happened, but it hadn't happened yet. The first wave of persecution for the church was in Jerusalem. If you open up your Bible at some point to the book of Acts and read the story of the gospel, you'll find that early on, as the Holy Spirit sat down on the day of Pentecost, As the people spoke in tongues, those other languages, to communicate the gospel to people from foreign places. As all that took place, the enemies of Christ 
who saw him as a threat to the twisted form of Judaism of Jesus' day, they took issue with this and began to persecute the church. The first martyr of the church is a man named Stephen who stoned to death. And the Bible says a man named Saul, who became Paul, held the cloaks of the men who removed them so they could have the freedom to throw and stone Stephen. So Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, watched Stephen be stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And therefore, the church in Jerusalem was the one most intensely persecuted. Now, in addition to that, the first debate in the church was over race. The Jews who were Christians were wondering, could the Gentiles, the outsiders, those not Jewish, be saved by Christ? And one of the most significant moments is recorded in the book of Acts when the church leaders came together and said, look, God is saving both Jews and Gentiles. If God's grace is sufficient for them, how could we ever allow them outside of the common brotherhood and sisterhood of the faith? And so Paul, who was the Hebrew of Hebrews by his own definition, spent his whole ministry longing for the Jews to be saved. In fact, he even says in the book of Romans, I'd give up my own salvation if my brothers would turn to Christ. And many did. But he also spent most of his public ministry not with Jews, but with Gentiles like the very ones living in Corinth. Now, what this means is, is that Paul was looking for ways for the Gentiles who had been received in fellowship by the Jews because of Christ to bless the Jews. Well, people bless people in all kinds of ways. You give me a hug, you tell me you love me, do something kind for my child. But you know the blessings you remember in your life? I'll tell you you remember At some point in your life, and some of you may be living it right now, you have nothing. You are struggling. And someone came along and blessed you financially. They gave you something. Maybe they helped you one semester make tuition. Maybe they helped you buy a set of tires for that vehicle you needed to get back and forth to work. Maybe they gave you a short-term loan or, or even took a chance on you and gave you a job you weren't qualified for so that you could earn money to take care of your family. At some point in your life, somebody's blessed you. And even now, occasionally, we exchange gifts all the time, but occasionally someone may buy a gift for you or you may have the opportunity to buy a gift for someone that's completely unexpected and is seen as way too much money to spend. And when someone does that to, for you, it's hard to put into words what it means, but if you had to press it into a sentence, it would come out something like this. They, they must truly love me. So what Paul did was ingenious. He's traveling to all these Gentile churches, and the church in Jerusalem is struggling. So he would encourage the churches in and around the Mediterranean to send their love in the form of financial offerings back to Jerusalem. And one of the purposes of his missionary journey was to receive the offering and to take it back. And in the midst of all this, we find verses like what we find here where Paul says, Now concerning the collection of the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, which proves this was not something specific to Corinth, so you also are to do. 
And then we get this jewel of a text, this pattern of New Testament giving. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. It's one of the most perfect, condensed, yet sufficient examples of what giving should look like in our lives. This is the last Sunday of June, as has been the wonderful rhythm of my life over the last seven or eight years. I have some time, family, to rest and to think in July. Don't miss it. I got some phenomenal preachers coming in. Phenomenal. Every time I come to a point where we're at the mid-year, I like to pause and tell you in one presentation of what the Lord has done. I sometimes see it as a halftime speech. We're halfway through this wonderful year, believe it or not. In fact, we're over halfway now. There's never been a time where the Lord has given more to our church. But there's also never been a time where your giving is more significant and important. I'm about to overwhelm you with some statistics. Don't try to write them down. The top of your head will blow off. Your hand won't keep up. That's kind of the point. I want you to just sit back and see what the Lord has given and done. What do I mean? Well, let's just start with church attendance. Year to date, we are 1,000 higher than we were a year ago in our weekly church attendance. 1,000 people in 12 months. By the way, that's not guesstimation. We have images, cameras. We count on Monday so that we know. Since 2022, when I began 1 Corinthians, we've seen 300 people be baptized, 600 join the church, 100 are waiting to join, and we've had 2,800 first-time guests in 18 months. In our kids' ministry alone, I walked through there this morning. I can only handle it about 10 minutes. It scares me. I, I run back backstage. Just in the past year, our kids' ministry has gone from engaging about 2,000 kids to 2,400 kids. This past school year, we averaged 274 more children on Sunday mornings and 129 more in midweek. But it's not just kids' ministry, if you think about it. It's also in our student ministry and in our next-gen ministry and in all of the ways we do ministry. In All Access, which is our ministry to students and children with special needs, but it's really more than that. It's our ministry to the families who have the privilege of having children that are designated as having a special set of needs. We had three ASL interpreters. Now we have 12 we have exponential growth in that number, and right now we're servicing between 30 and 60 kids every Sunday morning, many of which have a shadow with them in their regular education classroom, and some are in classrooms where they are catered to in a more age-specific, disability-specific way. My wife is teaching one of those classes right now, this morning as I preach. She has an early childhood special education degree, and so... She's back there right now with those children who are in a class for them to help engage them. 
In 2021, in our preteen, that's our fourth and fifth graders, we averaged about 50 or 60 on Wednesday nights. This year, we averaged 130 to 140. That's just two grades, fifth and sixth graders. Two years ago, we didn't have a student center. Then we had a wonderful student center. Then we grew to our student center size. Now we've maxed out our student center, and we need more space for students. We had about 387 students engaged in 2021. Now we're engaging somewhere around 1,300 students in our weekly programs during the school year. Not all at the same time, and certainly some of those kids are more friends than others, but they've been here and they've been ministered to. We've had 1,400 adults participate in our four-part discipleship program. I'll be telling you more about that this fall. Launched equipping classes in Woodruff with 70 folks. We formalized a small group apprentice program. If you want more small groups, you've got to have more small group leaders. To have more small group leaders, you need to develop more small group leaders. We've got 40 folks preparing to launch new small groups right now. And hopefully this fall, 1,700 adults will be engaged in one way, shape, or form in the adult intentional discipleship. Doesn't stop there, though. In the biblical counseling ministry, since 2021, we've counseled 276 people. This is not a 15-minute cup of coffee. This is an intense counseling program. We currently serve about 127 people, which represents about 508 counseling hours per month. We're now a training center for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselor, and we had over 53 other churches come to this campus to be trained and when you think about that, that means that 465 people have been trained to do biblical counseling in the last 24 months in this room alone. That's not where it stops. We sent about 450 people from this campus. You see those empty seats to your left or your right? They're empty for two reasons. One, it's beautiful and it's summertime. But the main reason is there's 450 to 500 people who are not here because they're in church at Woodruff at Lake Cooley this morning. The future is not mega churches. The future is healthy, strong, Bible-believing churches birthing more churches. The sweet spot of church, I'm convinced, is 300 to 1,000. That's the sweet spot. So we want to produce as many of those campuses and churches as possible that are led under live biblical preaching. We're on our way. We've also expanded Missions, equipping conference to lay leaders. Local churches were coming. We relaunched the Lake Cooley Food Pantry recently with dozens of volunteers. 30 more families that are challenged to have enough nutrition monthly are now being fed through this ministry. It's blessing a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But it's not just about missions either. It's also about finances. Church at the Mill to open the doors requires $20,000 a day. That's what it costs to operate this church. Our mortgage is a million dollars a year. You're sitting in a beautiful facility that's not paid for. We've knocked a dent in it. But basically, if you think about your life, you know your largest monthly cost is usually your house payment. Our house payment's a million dollars a year. We've spent $700,000 cash just in Woodruff and Lake Cooley to get them up and going. But we didn't do a special offering. We didn't have to borrow more money. And we didn't borrow more money on our own equity because of your faithfulness and giving. Here's the point. The point is more than ever, more than ever right now, we're seeing God use our church to reach people. 
we're ministering more than ever. We're sending more than ever. But we're also spending more than ever. We're in great shape financially. But there's not tremendous surplus. The dollars that we're spending are from missions and ministry. Not, not salaries or to make our own selves more comfortable. Which means it's good for the church to be reminded of what it looks like to make sure your money's where your mouth is. That if you really want to help us impact darkness, that more than ever we will be a people who make a difference through our generosity. Later this fall, we're going to do something we haven't done in many years. And we haven't done it in many years because the timing has not been right. To be honest with you, you don't lead people lovingly to navigate a pandemic by launching giving programs. So we've not said or done a whole lot about giving or generosity through the last few years. And what I've noticed is that as the church has been faithful, you have been faithful. Many of you are faithfully giving. You're the reason for this beautiful grace that God has displayed. But this fall, we're going to go after our debt, and we're going to go after putting ourselves in a position for the future. Remember I told you that our payment's about a million dollars a year? If we get debt-free, that's a million more dollars annually for campuses, for missions, and for ministry without increasing the budget one dollar. When you think about that, you think about what Paul and others witnessed that Luke wrote in the book of Acts, chapter 5. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So later this fall, you and I are going on a journey called More Than Ever. I'm going to spend a lot of time in July praying, writing, thinking about how I can best lead you through that. But in the meantime, we couldn't run past this beautiful verse. A beautiful, simple pattern for giving. As I close, let me read the verse to you again. Look what it says beginning in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. If you're a guest of ours this morning, I don't want a dime of your money. I'm not interested in you ever attending a church and feeling as though, well, I went to church at the mill and it was big and beautiful and nice, and the pastor talked about money the whole time. That's really not what we do here. But if you're a part of our church, if you've been ministered to by our church, then you are the fruit of the generosity of other people. In fact, some of you have never worshipped at Church at the Mill in any other building but this one, which means there were people by faith giving sacrificially to pay for the seat you're sitting in and the asphalt you parked your car on, if you were lucky enough to park on asphalt. Some of you parked on grass. And many of our great givers park on grass intentionally so that our guests can park on asphalt. What should your life look like in giving as a believer? This is a tried and tested outline that many pastors have used. It's so simple and so good. Number one, you should give periodically. Paul says, on the first day of the week. Why is it not okay to throw a hundred bucks at the church at Christmas or to give a 20 when it's in your pocket? Again, any dollar given to our church, we rejoice over and we'll use it to bless others. But what should the pattern of a believer's life be? That just as every other part of your life worthwhile requires investment, 
that you set aside periodically time to give to the Lord, weekly, monthly. A lot of people give based on the way their income comes in, and there are so many ways to give. You can put it in an offering box, you can give online, you can mail it to the church, but you give systematically, periodically. For the New Testament believers, Paul says the best time is that giving should correlate worship. Just as you worship on the first day of the week, part of your worship should be given. But not only should you give periodically, you should give personally. The scripture says in verse 2, on the first day of the week, each one. You may look around and see people at our church who appear to be wealthier than you. There are many people in this church wealthier than Laurel and I. We gave up the thought of being wealthy because of procreation. There's no hope of wealth. None whatsoever. Here's the point. God is not concerned about what others give in your life. He's concerned about you being faithful to give back to a God who's given so much to you. Paul told every believer in Corinth, each one of you should participate in this. I praise God for a mother and a father that taught me when I was a little boy that if I earned $10, a dollar belonged to the Lord. If I earned $100, $10 belonged to the Lord. That was their way of teaching me what they had practiced and believed. And I always say to people who do give personally, once you learn to be generous in God's kingdom, you'll never stop. I've never had to talk somebody into giving once they begin to test the Lord and see what he would do. But not only do you give personally, the scripture says in verse 2 that we give periodically, we give personally, but we also give purposefully. The verse says in verse 2 something pretty interesting I think is worth noting. He says, each one of you should set aside, first day of the week, each of you put something aside and store it up. Meaning there's a plan and a purpose to this. Meaning I'm not going to throw my leftovers at God or give in reaction to some emotional plea from the pastor occasionally. I have a purpose in my giving. There is a purpose to giving your mortgage every week. You won't be evicted and eventually you'll own the home or you'll sell it and get your equity out of it. There's a purpose in making a car payment. The first purpose is keeping a promise. You sign the loan, you should keep it. But secondly, you need a vehicle to get from point A to point B. There's a purpose in paying your Verizon bill or your AT&T bill or your T-Maybe bill. There's a purpose in that. And, 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 the reason, and the reason that you make those payments is because your phone is your communication link to everything in your life. There's a purpose to giving to the Lord. I've just shared with you the literal numbers of people who are being impacted. And those people were saved by the grace of God, not by Church at the Meal and not by any member of our leadership. But it was the church being here and being present that was the conduit through which God poured his love into their life. That's the way your giving should be, purposefully. And then finally, your giving should be proportionate to your income. This is why God celebrates generosity in the poor, the middle class, and the wealthy. He says in the verse, as he may prosper. God has never put a price tag on being faithful to the Lord. He simply says, your giving should reflect the way in which God has blessed you with income. It's one of the reasons 
Though I do not have time this morning, it's one of the reasons why I believe so passionately in tithing. It's why our pastors here are required to tithe. I'm not interested in any pastor putting himself up as a spiritual leader if he's not a lead giver on our staff. It's why our deacons are asked and required to tithe to serve as our deacons, our lay spiritual leaders. It's why it matters for accountability that we have leaders who understand that God is not interested in you comparing what you can and cannot give to the person to your left or to your right, but he is interested in you managing all that he's given you and bringing that first fruit to the Lord. I mean, ultimately, we give because he gave. Who don't want to be like the Lord? Years ago, it was very popular to wear a WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? And one of the things that made that little bracelet so popular is it's really hard to mess up royally in every situation if you pause and go, what would the Lord do? I like a little bit better. I like it more theologically, Sam. What would the Lord have me do for his glory? But you can't fit that on a bracelet. But what would the Lord have me do for his glory? Which means to emulate the Lord is the aspiration of every Christian. Our God is a lot of things, but I can't get past. And one of the greatest ways to describe him, he's a giver. He's a giver. He gives life. He gives love. Of course, you know what the gospel says. He gave his only son. Why do I believe in giving the church at the mill? Because of what's happening right now at the Woodruff campus. There's a young man, you've seen him before, his name's Will. 2019, he and his family walked into this door and he was not saved. He thought his kids needed to be in church, he grew up around it. God wrecked his agenda for his life, grabbed his heart and his wife's heart, saved his soul, he followed that with believer's baptism, he was then discipled, then he began feeling a call to ministry. Then he enrolled in our school of ministry while working a full-time job. And now he is preparing to move his family to Utah to plant a church to reach into the lives of people in the LDS community. So in just a matter of years, he went from a lost man to a church planter, and he's preaching his first sermon today at the Woodruff campus. That's why I give to church at the mill. That's why it matters that even now in June, every single person who calls this your spiritual home, help us have a great summer spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially. And ultimately, when we give, we give because he gave. I think it's appropriate that the book of 1 Corinthians is about the church operating together around the goodness of God. And one of the things that Paul took aim at over in chapter 11, if you remember, in the Church Matters series, is getting the Lord's Supper right. As we close today, I wanted to close my time with you during the first half of this year by taking communion together. As you prepare to do so, you can close your Bibles and take out your Lord's Supper elements. And as you do that, I want to remind you what Paul wrote in chapter 11. 
He says uh, these words in verse 28. I read it almost every time we take the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The idea being that this is a celebration of what God has given to us. It actually flows beautifully out of a message on giving. Because he's a giver. But if I am flipping about this, if I rush into this, if I don't take a moment to examine my heart, then I'm not only disobeying the clear scripture, I'm missing the opportunity to reflect on what he's done. I texted Will earlier this morning. I said, I know you're nervous. But you did not save you. You did not call you. So you don't have to preach this morning. Let the Lord preach through you. Be free. Rest in your preparation. And you'll honor the Lord. I'm sure after I read that text, he's still nervous. But in many ways, we're just a sailboat trying to get our rudder in the right direction and have our sails up and the winds of God's spirit moves us along. When you come to communion and you come to this portion of our service where we close, you've you, you got to make yourself. Ask a simple question about your walk. Am I aligning my life in such a way so that I am moving according to the will and the presence of God? Or am I pushing back? Am I paddling in my own direction? Am I paddling according to my own desires and my own dreams? Now, I can't answer that for you. But if I love you, and I do with all my heart, I have to ask you to deal with the Lord before we take this. So would you be so kind as to bow your head with me? If you're a guest of ours, we want you to know that our table is for believers. If you've never trusted Christ, then I certainly would not want you to participate in a ceremony that is for Christians. There's no desire to alienate or isolate you, but this is for believers. If you have a young child beside you, it's perfectly fine for them to know this is not for them yet. Until they reach an age where they not only fully understand, but they fully repent and then follow that with baptism. But for many of you in the room, you would say, Pastor, not only am I a member of this church or I'm in the process of joining this church, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a baptized follower of Jesus. Then this is your opportunity to look deep and to say, is there anything in my life that would separate me from catching the wind of God's Spirit, from moving according to His will? I just want to give you a moment in a room that's often filled with joy and laughter and praise and worship and even the volume of my own voice. It is a good thing to sit in silence, listen to the beautiful notes that Josh plays and reflect on your own life and deal with the Lord. Would you do that now?
gracious Lord, as we come to your table. You are the giver of all things good. May we learn from your text this morning and be givers. May our money reflect our priorities. Darkness seems to be winning. The enemy does not take days off. And there are plenty of lost souls who pump untold amounts of money into the propagation of sin and sorrow, lies, and lunacy. As much as it depends on us, help us to be a people who are, would be proud for the opportunity to sit with you and look at our bank statement and show that our love for you is far more than just the words we sing, the places we go or the habits of our life, but our love for you is reflected in the sacrificial giving to your kingdom. We know that we learned that from you, for while we were sinners, you gave your only begotten son every person in this room that believes upon you would not perish but have eternal life bless our time at the table in Jesus name amen Paul wrote in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 these words for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Verse 25 of the same verse, same chapter. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I love verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes what can wash away our sin (laughs) it won't be your giving it won't be this church it won't be your habits it's not even the finer points of your Christian doctrine it's the blood of Jesus as you go out this week let the gospel move you let the gospel love you and make sure that the gospel also teaches you to give God bless you. You are dismissed.